Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Christopher Rufo. He's a journalist and filmmaker. He's the director of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty, one of the best investigative figures out there, in my opinion. He joined us a few months back to discuss diversity training and critical race theory as it's been spreading through the schools and institutions and corporate America and the federal government as well. Today he's here to discuss a different subject, one I think more closer to a long-standing issue that he has covered. Uh, he has done a little film on, he's done several films, but uh, one just came out, on, it's on YouTube, it's about 12 minutes long. It's a summary of homelessness in three cities, Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Welcome, Christopher. It's great to be with you. First, a background question. What brought you to the homelessness issue? You've been working on this for quite a while. Yeah, I've been working on homelessness for a number of years, and uh, it really came to me from my personal experience. I was living with my wife and then one son uh, in Seattle, and it just seemed like something that had uh, dramatically and very quickly collapsed the quality of life in my neighborhood. And it went from a kind of clean, fun, kind of bohemian area. And then within a few years, there were tents on the corners. Uh, as I was walking my son to school, you had to kind of skip over and evade uh, needles on the ground and, and condoms and all sorts of other uh, trash and drug paraphernalia. And then you started seeing a rise in uh, burglaries, break-ins, car prowls, and then violence. You know, one of the things that really kind of set me off on this journey of doing some serious policy research uh, on this issue was a gentleman just down the street from us, two homeless uh, men were fighting, and one of them doused the other in a cup full of a lighter fluid and then lit him on fire. Okay. And these kind of personal experiences really drove the question to me, what is happening and what is going so horribly wrong with our policies? What years was this? This was about three years ago. Oh, okay. So pretty pretty recently. Now, in, in the film, you begin with really what is the dominant narrative of homelessness. What is that? Yeah, the dominant progressive narrative. And this is something that is promulgated by activist groups, by academics in the field, by uh, political leaders uh, in the largest cities, which are all kind of uniformly progressive, is that um, essentially homelessness is a conspiracy between uh, landlords, real estate developers, systemic racism, police, uh, and other institutions that have conspired to put the vulnerable on the streets. And I think of it as the hard times narrative. Uh, it's always kind of deployed in a very affective way where it, it generates a kind of emotion of, of sympathy or empathy or compassion, but ignores a lot of those hard questions. And 
you know, the, the real flaw in this narrative is that progressive political leaders in these big West Coast cities have ignored, uh, which is very clearly the two dominant causes of homelessness, which are uh, drug addiction and mental illness, because it is a, it creates a kind of moral complexity. It creates a dynamic of, of responsibility. It creates a, a kind of a more nuanced picture than simply landlords are raising rents and putting good people on the streets. And this is really the fight. I think the the progressive narrative, unfortunately, has has gained dominance uh, in these cities and prevents uh, even in otherwise intelligent people uh, from truly understanding the problem. Well, as you've gone into this narrative and exposed its spuriousness, how did you gather evidence against it? What what kind of investigations have you have you done? Uh, I presume that you spend all your time in your basement in your pajamas. Uh, combing the internet. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it really is kind of twofold, right? You want to have a grounding in kind of academic literature, in statistical literature, in research. Uh, so it's, you know, going through the, the, the library archives for all, the, all of the papers on homelessness and mental illness and addiction, treatment programs. And there are some really great kind of academic resources available that even subvert the political narrative. But I, I think what I've done, um, and this really c- comes from my experience and technique as a documentary filmmaker is, uh, I, I went, I hit the streets. So I went uh, on kind of midnight mission trips uh, under bridges. I hung out on Skid Row in Los Angeles for a number of days. I and people were people were happy to talk to you. Yeah, people are generally happy. Not everyone, you know, but uh, you know, on Skid Row, it's, it's pretty volatile. So I hired. Uh, you know, a, a kind of formerly homeless, you know, 300 pound gentleman to serve as my kind of body man uh, for that trip because you know, Skid Row in Los Angeles is probably the most uh, volatile and dangerous neighborhood in the country. Uh, it's just so unexpected what can happen because of the proliferation of mental illness, drugs, and violence. But, you know, you, you get a really clear picture when you spend two to three days in Skid Row. And then I also did a number of kind of field reporting to uh, jails. I went uh, into the jail system, into the uh, mental health uh, treatment system, and really trying to understand experientially what's happening, what are the challenges, what are the problems, what do people that are working on these issues on the ground face every day. And it doesn't take a kind of perceptive level of, of, of genius to understand that the people who are unsheltered are the victims, uh, not of landlords or capitalism or Jeff Bezos, but are the victims of these cruel human torments of methamphetamine, heroin, fentanyl addiction, Hmm. schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder, and that these cluster of problems can't be solved by taxing uh, Amazon or Microsoft or, or Google or Twitter but have to be solved at this deep human level. And in fact, uh, I make the argument in the film that the progressives who speak the language and rhetoric of compassion have actually created a tangible system of enormous cruelty. uh, And that's what you see on the streets. Hmm. You know, someone once told me that, tell me if this is correct, if you ask emergency room personnel in cities, they will tell you, do not give money to people on the street. Give them food if you want, but don't give them money. 
The reason being that they're going to go, they're going to go get drugs. They're going to go get 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 something to drink. They're going to stumble into the street and get hit by a car. They're things bad things are going to happen to them. Is that correct? It is correct, and and I think that the the numbers back it up too, right? There was a UCLA study of sixty four thousand health records of homeless men, predominantly men across the country. And 75% of the unsheltered homeless, so the people you see on the streets panhandling or living in tents or cars, 75% have a, a substance abuse disorder. And depending on the city in the Northwest, it's predominantly uh, opioids. As you go further south in California, it's predominantly methamphetamines. But these are hard, uh, hardcore addictions. And the, the federal numbers are actually astonishing. I, I, I try to highlight this in some of my reporting, but... Uh, the average uh, serious 21 times or more per month heroin or methamphetamine user spends $1,800 a month uh, to support uh, their drug habit. So when you combine this with the fact that 90 to 95 percent of, of the homeless have no source of uh, employment income, you get a really obvious picture of what's happening. You have people who are on the streets uh, that have no employment, that have a serious addiction, that have to come up with 1800 bucks a month to buy drugs. And not to disparage those people as human beings, they're worthy as human beings of our help and support, but we have to start from a kind of clear-headed picture of what their problems are. And this explains a lot of things. It explains why people are on the streets in the first place. It also explains the proliferation of property crime, uh, car break-ins, uh, and, and, and other uh, kind of low-level crimes that you see uh, really exploding in these West Coast cities. And I think that the, the kind of progressive counter-argument is, well, that's really demonizing the homeless or being cruel. But I see it as just the opposite, because I think that if you're going to solve a problem, you first have to understand the problem clearly. Uh, so I, I think these kind of uh, facts and figures and numbers and stories are, are crucially important. And we have to somehow break through this kind of mononarrative or kind of meta-narrative that's been constructed uh, by the progressive class uh, in our largest cities. In talking about the progressive narrative, uh, you refer to, quote, effectively loaded images that reinforce the narrative, that play up the narrative. Give us an example of the kind of image presented to shore up progressivist vision, compassion. Yeah, I'll give you the perfect image that actually makes uh, makes both points simultaneously, the kind of myth and the kind of reality. There's a group, uh, actually a, a great group of very kind-hearted people in Seattle uh, called Facing Homelessness. And they do one-on-one -on -one homeless outreach. It's all supported by private donations. And they, they really, truly try to connect with and help. But, you know, one of their kind of Facebook posts really just, for me, exploded the whole narrative. You know, they posted a picture of this uh, this young man, probably in his uh, 20s, who was in a tent. And they said, can't remember his name, something like, oh, Jeremy is uh, is in need. He's our homeless friend. Can we raise money? Uh, can we get him, buy him a new tent? Can we send him cash? He told us that he got PTSD because he um, killed a child in the Bosnian War. And this has really haunted him and led to him to becoming homeless. And that is affectively loaded. I mean, you can't help but feel for this young man who uh, killed a child in war, who came back uh, and is now on the streets. You want to help. And, you know, they sent him thousands of dollars in cash. The problem is that if you have any kind of cursory knowledge of, of history, you'd remember that the Bosnian War was in the 1990s. Well, I was going to say he's a young man. 
likely before this person was born. So it is 100% impossible uh, that this guy was two or three years old, uh, you know, serving in the U.S. military in Bosnia. But it gives you a sense that the, the, the emotions, the kind of affect that's, that's triggered by this narrative are so strong uh, that it can absolutely cloud people from seeing even basic facts or having even a minimum level of skepticism. And I think that that image of this person who, again, truly is deserving of our support, uh, is really a kind of sign of how uh, emotions are manipulated on this issue and unfortunately prevents us from actually doing good and actually helping. One part of your film refers to, quote, the housing hypothesis. What is that hypothesis? The housing hypothesis is something that is really was generated in the mid-2000s and unfortunately supported by the Bush administration, as well as mayors in, I think, 234 cities around the country. And the idea, uh, the kind of hypothesis at the time was people are going to be homeless. It's very difficult to, to get them treatment. It's very difficult to get them off the streets. So the solution that will both solve homelessness by getting people off the streets, but also reduce costs because we'll hopefully get them out of the emergency room, is to give people free housing. This is called housing first, to say um, we're going to build studio and one-bedroom apartments and have no requirements of sobriety or participation in treatment and essentially just give the homeless permanent supportive housing. So housing with no requirements and no time frame. And the idea was that this would both get people off the streets and save money. But the housing hypothesis now, kind of after 15 years of testing, we've spent billions upon, you know, tens of billions of dollars testing this hypothesis. And even in the academic literature of people who support this hypothesis um, or support these programs ideologically shows that they don't work and that in, in the majority of cases, it actually doesn't save money. They're enormously expensive to run. It doesn't reduce the number of people on the streets in absolute terms. Uh, in the cities that have gone furthest on this hypothesis, they've actually shown increasing levels of homelessness since they've ran these experiments, large-scale experiments. And then third, and I think most importantly, um, th the literature shows that in housing-first projects or housing-first communities, these programs show zero effectiveness in reducing substance abuse, in reducing symptoms of psychiatric illness and even reducing uh, the rate of death from things like overdose. So all you've done is translate the pathologies on the street into pathologies in these subsidized apartment units uh, that are enormously expensive. And taking resources from treatment programs, taking resources from emergency shelters, and then fo focusing them on really these boondoggles that do nothing but concentrate the problems uh, within these housing units and deprive, you know, in Los Angeles's case, uh, 59,000 homeless from getting any kind of help and support that they need. You know, I was in Berkeley a few years ago with Rusty Reno for a, a First Things event, and I took a cab from, I think, Oakland Airport into, into Berkeley, and I knew we passed into Berkeley because there was a little homeless encampment. There were some tents. There were some guys sitting there. They were there playing cards, sitting in lawn chairs, and there was a banner drawn across two trees and the banner had big letters that said first they came for the homeless but i asked someone about that that camp and uh, someone said oh yeah the, and, and the population is getting bigger every once in a while you'll see a sheriff's car from a county 60 miles away from berkeley 
and the sheriff's car will pull up, the back door will open, an obvious homeless person will get out, and the sheriff will drive away. Is that an example of the magnet effect that you refer to in, in your piece? Yeah, it is. I mean, and <clears throat> it's it's absolutely uh, an example of the magnet effect. And and in a way, it's a, a kind of rational response by the sheriff, you know, basically saying, hey, um, you're not welcome in our county uh, to sleep on the streets, um, but I'll take you somewhere where that's fine. Uh, it, but it's also and I think this is really a critical point. It's also a rational response on on the part of the homeless. And I, I like to explain to people that people respond to incentives. And I think the huge mistake in homelessness policy is that policymakers have assumed that the homeless operate on what I think of as middle class logic, that they'll make the same kind of decisions based on the same kind of inputs and incentives as someone in the kind of middle class uh, mindset or culture or environment. But the homeless operate on a different set of incentives, and it's really a kind of incentive structure of the pathologies around homelessness. And it's a rational decision for someone who is living in, let's say, Idaho to say, you know, actually my life and kind of my my own sense of personal benefit will be much greater if I move to Seattle. Consequently, you have about a quarter of the people in the Seattle area migrated to that area after becoming homeless out of state. So people are actually migrating across state lines. This is the same dynamic as the old hobos of 100 years ago who used the trains to migrate to kind of better locations. And Seattle is attractive, like San Francisco and other other counties, because you can sleep on the streets. Um, there's now a moratorium of cleaning up most homeless encampments. So you have really a right to camp in public places, on sidewalks, etc. So you won't be disturbed. You, you have essentially decriminalized public use of drugs and the kind of black market uh, that underpins it. So you can shoot up on the street. I've seen this hundreds of times. People just, you know, tying off and shooting up uh, in the middle of a downtown street with no fear of, of, of getting arrested. And then you have now in San Francisco and Seattle, and then I think in LA with a new district attorney, where they're increasingly decriminalizing crimes. So decriminalizing a theft under a certain dollar threshold. Uh, usually 750 to a thousand dollars. Decriminalizing public nuisance crimes, decriminalizing prostitution, decriminalizing camping and obstruction. So you know that you can operate uh, kind of with impunity. And I, I think this is really a, a huge mistake. They're trying to help people without understanding them. Uh, and I think that's why you get these really chaotic, really third world conditions uh, in the wealthiest places in the United States. Well, Christopher, I, I, this raises a question I hadn't thought of, but aren't, aren't they going to lose more prosperous citizens? Aren't, aren't citizens, if they have kids, aren't they going to move out? Aren't, they, aren't we going to see a migration out of these cities? Aren't they going to lose their tax base? Yeah, we, we, I mean, we've already seen it. I think that that's something that I've been predicting for a number of years and has kind of, kind of slowly started. But really, COVID was the kind of inflection point for this process. And COVID did two things. One, it kind of reset everyone's expectations. People started working from home. People were closer to family. People weren't traveling into kind of those downtown environments every day uh, where these things are particularly prominent. 
but it also really forced everyone in the country to adapt to remote working, to adapt to Zoom. And people are saying, wait a minute, I don't have to drive in to Seattle from an outer suburb um, to go to work anymore. Why do I even live here? And companies are now starting to adapt. You've seen a huge number of venture capitalists uh, leaving San Francisco in the last 90 days. You've seen HP move their headquarters to Texas. Oracle move their headquarters to Texas. Elon Musk moved the headquarters of Tesla to Texas. You're seeing an exodus of entrepreneurs, of wealthy people, and then getting less headlines, but I think equally important, uh, even kind of mid-level tech employees. They're bailing on cities like Seattle and San Francisco, where you have this really awful and kind of policy-driven contradiction of very high cost of living, very low quality of life. Uh, and that's really the kind of decision point that has people fleeing. Because you have to think, if I can work for Google or Facebook or Microsoft, making a quarter million dollars a year, um, but I could live uh, in a beautiful place in Boise or Austin or or Iowa even, let's say Iowa City, at a fraction of the cost of living, if that becomes a possibility, you're going to see people um, taking that arbitrage opportunity. And I think we're seeing it now. And unfortunately, the political class in these cities just lashes out at these people, de continues to demonize them. Uh, and doubles down on the policies uh, that generated this crisis in the first place. You know, a couple of years ago, we had someone write an article called Homeless in Seattle. He was an older man who'd been through a lot in his life, uh, saw things up front. Actually, he said one of the terms for Seattle among the homeless in Seattle was free Seattle. It's a good place to be. Uh, he, sa he said that the city council actually hired people to work in the bus stations waiting for people to get off the buses who were homeless, who had been given bus tickets by, uh, by the, the officials in faraway places. Send them, put them on a bus, send them to Seattle, give them the ticket. And Seattle was there absorbing them, uh, bringing them into the city, getting them all set up in, in places to stay. And one of the things that the author Gil Costello said is that people don't understand what you were saying a moment ago about the mindset. He said that there are a whole lot of homeless who are, quote, masters at working the system. These are people who, in, in a way, are survivors, right? And they, they, they have incentives. But what, what they think, or what they operate on the incentives is quite different from what the, what, what the compassionate city council members. Have you seen that a lot? Yeah, of course. I mean, they, they are, yeah, masters of their environment and domain. And you have to be, you know, in, extremely resourceful to live uh, the lifestyle that you might have in Skid Row or Pioneer Square in Seattle or the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Uh, it's difficult. It's physically challenging. It's dangerous. You have to navigate a, a very difficult group of people, a very difficult kind of micro society. And the government programs, much like government programs, uh, you know, in, in the same way that a group of savvy tax corporate tax accountants can navigate the tax code as set forth by the government, uh, the homeless can navigate the homeless programs that are set forth, you know, by local and county governments. And people get a sense of what you can do, what you can't do. Um, they're very responsive to kind of rules and loopholes and. Uh, cities that are kind of bleeding hearts, cities that don't have any sense of limit or don't have any sense 
of that humans can uh, act in a way that is uh, manipulative or dishonest or harmful. Um, they don't set any guardrails and therefore they're open for exploitation. And people in desperate circumstances, I've talked to a lot of folks, including some you know, recovered homeless addicts that describe their hustles. They say everybody on the street has a hustle, whether it's boosting, which is like shoplifting from a Walgreens and then selling it on the streets, or it's prostitution, or it's uh, the drug trade, or it's serving as a debt collection man, so a kind of street enforcer, or it's robbery, whatever it is, or it's selling food stamps at a at a 50% face value reduction, which is the kind of exchange rate. Whatever it is, people generate these schemes or hustles. And in the cities where there is a lot of money that is flowing through these programs and systems, they're really just a kind of target for these hustles and people adapt uh, very quickly. Yeah. Okay, now in your film, you lay out in dismaying detail the amount of money these cities have spent for a few decades now trying to deal with the homeless problem and how ineffectual those programs are. But a whole industry has sprung up around it. People have jobs and they're invested in, in homelessness in, in a perverse way. We have bad policies. We've got an ideology of, of compassion that is a false ideology. Really, the, the last question for, for you, Christopher. You, you said that when you go before Seattle City Council and try to present empirical evidence that what you are doing is not working, you're not helping the people you're presuming to help. Uh, first of all, tell us, what is their initial response to that evidence? And second question, and then, then, then we'll wrap it up, what will make the politicians change their policies? You know, the reaction is essentially a kind of uh, hysteria where if you go into any of these meetings or groups and say, well, here's the evidence on addiction, here's the evidence on mental illness, here's the evidence on crime, uh, you will be immediately called a homeless hater, a fascist, a racist, whatever kind of epithet is kind of closest to the lips of, of, of your uh, of your counterparts, I mean, they will mercilessly go after you. And I've seen this, you know, escalate even uh, there was a group of people, very kind hearted, uh, mostly kind of liberal Democrats uh, in Seattle uh, called Speak Out Seattle. It was a group that emerged to try to basically find compassionate, data-driven solutions to homelessness in response to the rising lawlessness and crime, et cetera. And there was one very nice woman, uh, she's probably in her 60s or 70s, and she was saying, you know, we need to find a better solution. And immediately, the activists in Seattle uh, spray-painted her driveway, you know, fascist, uh, to try to intimidate this, this you know, elderly woman out of speaking out against uh, addiction and mental illness and crime among the homeless. And that, to me, is a summary of the kind of uh, brute force of ideology um, kind of matched with political power and intimidation that you find in these cities. I mean, it really is truly a taboo uh, to mention any of these facts in a lot of these places. And what will it take to change? Um, you know, I think it needs to get a lot worse before it can get better. And I think the reference point is you have to think of New York City in the 1980s. Uh, New York City in the 1980s, I think there were something like 3,000 homicides uh, at the kind of peak of violence in the city. And it really took things to get that desperate before the political conditions were opened 
to having broken windows policing gain some prominence, to have uh, Rudy Giuliani come and become the kind of a uh, mayor who saved New York. And I think we're getting there, but I'm always surprised how strong ideology is um, in, in, in kind of creating an impenetrable bubble to facts. And and talking to people in Seattle and kind of listening in on the conversations, it, it isn't there yet. And it isn't there yet in a lot of these cities. So I think what it's going to take is either a mass uh, exodus or it's going to take people becoming uh, so kind of physically afraid for their safety um, that they're going to be desperately searching for better answers. Christopher, what is the is there a title for the film? I, I, I looked it up. I watched it, uh, but I can't remember. It, it, I mean, I guess if people go to YouTube and simply type in Christopher Rufo homelessness, they can they can go watch the film. We'll have a link to it. Uh, on yeah. the site, but but anything you want to say about where to find out more? The film is just called Homelessness. It's really a summary of all of my uh, knowledge and research over the last couple of years, broken down in a way for people who have are new to the issue can really understand. So if you search my name, Christopher Rufo, Homelessness, uh, it'll pop right up as the first result. And uh, I, I really encourage people, especially people who are living in a city that has homeless population um, that has kind of become a political issue to, to share the film. I, I think it's very accessible for people. Uh, I tried to make it as ideologically neutral as possible. Obviously, I have my own uh, thoughts and opinions that come through, but I tried to make it palatable for people of all different political backgrounds that care about the issue. Um, so I, I appreciate you shining a spotlight on it. It's always great to talk to you. And, and I hope that your viewers uh, enjoy the film. Thank you for joining us, Christopher. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.